verse 1. Ephesians 4 and verse 1, the text says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain the unity of the Spirit, he says in verse 3, in the bond of peace. Because Paul is saying God wants Christians to stay together. Unity is a huge priority for Christians in the New Testament era and today. Unity implies that not only are we in a relationship with God through Jesus, but that we are in a relationship with one another, other believers in God through Jesus. And that is a priority because Jesus set it as a priority himself. When Jesus prayed to the Father, this is John 17 and verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning only the disciples around him at the moment, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays to the Father that believers be one in the same way that he is one with the Father And he also puts this at the end of that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that in some way the unity of believers is a testimony to the world that God really did send Jesus and that Christianity really is true. So those are high stakes. That is a priority then because unity not only makes Christians more like God but also tells the world about God. And so division has always been a huge problem among Christians. It has always been an issue. I have been asked a question, and I want to take a few minutes this morning to pursue this question. How do I contribute to unity or division? That question is very specific, and I love the question, frankly, because the question gets more personal than we often get about a question like unity and division. It appears to me that very often when we talk about division, we talk about things that are over our heads. It's sort of, in my view, like what happens with the federal government. There are things that happen in the federal government, and, you know, I might like it or not like it, but really, I don't have that much of a say in it. I just live down here, and I just do kind of what I'm told. And in many ways, I think that's the way we view unity and division. We say, well, historically, there are all these divisions, and we talk about Catholicism, and we talk about the Protestant Reformation, and we talk about even the Restoration Movement, and we talk about how different groups split off and join other groups, and we say, well, you know, all of those groups, I I just wish that we weren't so divided, but that's not really anything I have anything to do with. But you know, unity and division have touched this local church. We have had people who maybe as individuals decide that they're unhappy with whatever is going on here, or maybe there are personal conflicts, maybe there are problems with teaching, and they decide they don't want to be a part of us anymore. And sometimes it's groups of people that say, I'm not happy here, I'm not happy with something that's happening here, I'm going to go off and join another group or form my own group. This is a much closer-to-home discussion than simply talking about historical divisions and denominations. And so I love the question because it asks, in a very honest and personal way, how do I contribute? What do I have to do with that? And how is it that in this local church, each one of us can be investing into the unity of this group so that we can fulfill Jesus' plea? When Jesus prayed about that, 
There is more to that than just talking about denominational divisions. There is also the practical part of what you and I are going to do with one another. And that is also what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 4. I want you to look with me again in verse 2 of Ephesians 4 that we just read. Paul writes, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, before we get into some of the practical things that we're going to talk about this morning, about how we contribute, I think we have to begin with just the idea that Jesus expects us to be growing in certain attitudes ourselves. You see those in verse 2. He says, with all humility. Humility is essential because when I work with other people, it means I will not always get my way and I am not the most important person. I am not the one who makes all the decisions. And I have to learn to submit to other people. That will require humility. But if I don't have humility, I will find unity very difficult. He says in verse 2, with gentleness. Gentleness means I'm not going to be harsh and rough with my brothers. Very often, conflict in a congregation happens because we're unhappy about the way something is said and done. More than the thing itself. Have you ever heard someone say that? It's not what they said. It's the way they said it. That's gentleness. Paul says if we want to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we've got to learn to be a gentle people and to deal with one another with gentleness. He says in verse 2, with patience. Patience is essential because there will be bumps along the way as we learn to get along, as we experience life together. Sometimes there are going to be people who are not yet fully mature. And some of their immaturity is going to bleed over onto us. It's going to hurt us and cause problems and trouble for us. And we have to learn to be patient with one another. We need space to grow. He says in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. We bear with one another. We stick together because I love you. Not just because I have to, because that is a motivation will break down. But it means that our work together is not just about me. You know, what I'm getting out of it, who's pleasing me, who's doing for me. Instead, this is about how I am contributing and showing my care for you. Not just whether I'm happy or unhappy. There is also this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul writes, For a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When Paul talks about the divisions in Corinth, he links them to jealousy. That there is a heart issue going on in which we view other people through the lens of envy. And I'm going to say, it's going to be very hard to be unified with people that we're jealous of. We're not going to see things the same way. We're going to have a hard time speaking gently and civilly to them. So what I'm saying is that there is an expectation that every one of us be growing in certain areas so that as this experiment of a local church continues to grow, we are all growing and getting better in our humility and gentleness and patience and love. Now, how do I contribute to unity or division? I want to give you just three areas, three questions really, and I'm going to take a little time with these this morning, but I really want you to take them home, and I really want you to think through these. Because these are broad and deep questions. The first is this. Do I cause problems or solve them? 
Am I a problem causer or a problem solver? Now, there were people in the era of the New Testament who were problem causers. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 16. We're going to look at a few passages here. Romans 16. This is Romans 16. I want to read in verse 17. Romans 16 and verse 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, Romans 16, 17, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So he says in verse 17 there, watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles. He says, avoid them. And he gives us a little insight into the heart behind those kinds of people in verse 18. He says, they don't serve the Lord, but their own appetites and that they're deceiving the naive. He is saying, these are not people you want to be. They're people you want to watch out for. They create divisions. That is an attribute of theirs. Go with me now to the book of Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, we're going to read beginning in verse 9. Titus 3 and verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul warns Titus, don't get wrapped up in these arguments, all these foolish disputes, all these things that, that tend to attract your attention. He says, instead, you watch out for people like, verse 10, the person who stirs up division. They are drawn to controversy. And they don't consider the fallout that comes when they focus on controversy, the division that that causes. They stir up division. And notice that he says this as sort of an attribute of a person. He doesn't just say they have before been involved in division, but it's something that they regularly do. And he says, you warn him, you warn him once, and then you warn him twice, and then you have nothing more to do with him. He is a divisive person. This is Jude 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. People who cause divisions. This is Galatians 5, 19 and 20. The works of the flesh are evident. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These are attributes, acts that people go through that then characterize them. This is who you become. There are people in the New Testament era who are problem causers. Now, what is that? What is that talking about? Sometimes that's a teaching thing, where they come and they bring teaching, and that teaching then divides people who say, I agree with it and I disagree with it. And they keep bringing the teaching because they know that the teaching is going to divide, and in some way they benefit from that. They gain followers who are now their peculiar, uh, believe their peculiar teaching. Sometimes, though, it's about personalities and the force of personality. I think especially of Diotrephes in this instance. Diotrephes had a certain bent, and he wanted to have things his way, and so he basically ran off all the people who didn't like him. He caused division. He was a divisive person. 
You can cloak that in religious things if you want. But that's really a character problem. It's not about the teaching. There are certain people who drive others away. There are certain people who friction follows them. Everywhere they go, they cause problems. And the question that I want to ask, is that me? Am I a problem causer? The flip side, though, the contrast is peacemakers. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. These are problem solvers. So when we talk about, in the text we began with, Ephesians 4, people who are trying to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, these are people who pursue unity by being patient and loving and bearing with others. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the high schoolers, y'all will recognize this. We were studying this this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1, "...which one of you has a grievance against another?" When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, we don't have time to go in depth into this text. But a couple of things are apparent. There are problems in the church at Corinth because they have differences. And instead of settling the problem, they're taking each other to court. And Paul's main objection, Paul's main issue, if you look at verse 5, he says, Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? Can it really be that in a group of Christians, one Christian has a problem with another Christian and nobody else will help them? Nobody else will solve the problem? Nobody else will judge that the only person that you can get to help you resolve a conflict is a judge? Can that really be? He says, I say this to your shame because God expects his people to be peacemakers, not problem causers, problem solvers. Go with me to Galatians chapter 6. It's over a few pages. Galatians 6 from 1 Corinthians. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone, Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Fascinating little text because he talks about spiritual people. People who are following after the Spirit, have the fruit of the Spirit from chapter 5. And he says, if you are a spiritual person and you see someone in sin, there is only one response. You go restore him. That word restore means to mend the nets back in the passages about the fishermen in the beginning of the Gospels. Mending him, bringing him back, restoring him so that he is useful again. You fix him, you help him. You go talk to him. You work with him. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Be kind. Be careful. And consider yourself. Do it in a spirit of humility. But solve the problem. Help the brother. That's what spiritual people do. And so I have to ask the question, do I cause problems or do I solve problems? Conflict is going to happen. So where do I fit in conflict? That's how I contribute to either unity or division. 
So let's take a moment. This is a hard question. Because we have a hard time admitting that sometimes we are the problem. Usually, we think someone else is the problem. Maybe that's our spouse, who always seems to be wrong. Maybe that's our kids. Maybe that's our friends at work. How is it that conflict can follow us everywhere we go and we don't ever think we cause it? There needs to be room for honest introspection here. Do I have problems over periods of years with people? Do I have a lot of feuds that I have to keep up with? Could I be the source of the problem? When people complain to me about someone else, how do I respond? Do I respond by trying to help them resolve the conflict? Or do I respond by siding with them against the other person and thereby deepening the rift? What is my response when I have a problem with someone else? What do I do? What do I do? It is here that I have to give a plug for Jesus' conflict resolution instructions. I am always giving this plug. It has blessed my life. It is in the Bible. This should not be something that's hard for Christians, although it's a challenging teaching. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is a conflict resolution instruction. Go talk to your brother, you and him alone. It seems to me that we don't do that very well and very often. And it shouldn't surprise us then when problems get bigger and bigger and bigger. That contributes to division. So I have to ask the question of myself, do I cause problems or do I solve problems? That's my contribution. Second question, do I criticize or encourage? Words have tremendous power. And much of the conflict and division that occurs in local churches and much of the unity that occurs in local churches is based on words. So the question is, how do I use my words? Let's look in Galatians 5. We're here in Galatians 6. Let's just turn back the page. Galatians 5 and verse 13. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul contrasts loving our neighbor with what he calls biting and devouring. Now that pictures the, the criticisms in a local church in a particularly violent way, right? Biting and devouring. But what he is saying is that's what you're doing. You're tearing one another down. You're eating one another up with your words. There also seems to be, by the way, a connection with jealousy. If you look down in verse 26, he says in verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Isn't that where a lot of criticism originates? In jealousy? We criticize other people because we think they don't deserve the credit they're getting or the gifts they're getting or the blessings they've had. That in some way, 
We wish we had it. We think we deserve it, and they don't. So if we can tear them down and criticize them, well, maybe we'll level the playing field a little bit because they don't deserve it, and I do. Am I a criticizer, a critic, or am I an encourager? I'm reminded of the story where Mary takes the ointment and anoints Jesus. And remember how the disciples led by Judas begin to fuss at her and say, they scold her is what one of the gospels says. Why wasn't this sold and and the money given to the poor? We could have done so much better with this, Mary. Why are you doing wasting this ointment? And Jesus comes to them and says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Now, what I'm getting at with that story, what I'm getting at here, is that very often criticism says more about the critic than it does about the one being criticized. It says that I'm the one who's insecure. It says that I'm the one who wants the glory. It says that I am ashamed that I'm not in the spotlight and I'm going to try to tear down whoever is. That will contribute to division in a local church. And that's something we can all do. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. I'm not sure we can realize just how sick a church can be when the members of the church are constantly criticizing. But I think we can see it when we see it in plain text like this. It's 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20 says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Doesn't that sound like a church you want to go to? Paul says, I'm concerned that this is what I'm going to find. Notice how many of those are verbal. He talks about quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip. These are things we do by speaking about one another in negative ways. And Paul is saying that is an unhealthy church. That is a sick church. And it is a church ripe for division. Now the contrast to criticism, the contrast to the constant slander and hostility and jealousy, the contrast is encouragement. We talked about this text last week, so I'm just going to put it on the board and we're not going to turn there. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, that we can use our speech to build people up. And this is a great test for whatever we're going to say, by the way. Is this going to help somebody and give grace to somebody and build them up? Is it good for them? Or is it instead just going to tear down? But I really want to talk about my favorite example of encouragement. It's in the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I really like to talk about Barnabas when I talk about encouragement. Acts chapter 11. Barnabas is, that word Barnabas is a nickname. It means son of encouragement. And I love the fact They named him, the apostles named him son of encouragement because what a guy this must have been. What kind of personality does it speak to that you are known for being such an encouraging man? Look in Acts chapter 11 and verse 21. 
It says in Acts 11.21, "...the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I just love this description of Barnabas, particularly verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. When he comes, he exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord. I just see Barnabas as an optimistic, positive guy. That he is always going to look to see the good. He sees the good in these new converts, even if they're Gentiles, some of them. He sees the good in Paul and he says, you know what? We've got such a good thing going here. I'm going to go get this other good guy and bring him here and we're going to do good. That's an environment everybody wants to be in. Is it any surprise to you that when you have a man like this encouraging all the time that the church grows and a great many are taught the gospel? Barnabas is the one who sees good in Paul and vouches for him before the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas is the one who sees good in John Mark, not once but twice, and makes, puts his reputation on the line over and over again because he sees good in others. That's encouragement. He is a son of encouragement because he is looking for the good. That contributes to unity. Not division. Do I criticize or encourage? There are always going to be quirks and weaknesses that other people have. Never me, but always other people. Things that would be right for criticism. We all have them. Do I see and promote the good? Do I fixate and always talk about the bad? I really want to stress something about this. I want to stress that this is also very important when the person we're talking about is not around. It's important how we talk about our brothers and sisters when we're not talking to our brothers and sisters. There is a power that lies in criticism and gossip. A power that says, I'm tearing someone down. And if I have you beside me while we tear someone down, we're kind of unified. We're kind of raised up above them and they're lowered. And we have a bond. There is something so tempting about that to say, I know what someone really thinks about someone else. It contributes to division. It implies that some people are more important and better than other people. And don't you wonder... If other people talk about you that way when you're not around, there is an alternative. We can be like Barnabas. We can be an encourager. We can be the kind of person that sees the good and talks about the good and pumps up the good to that person's face and when they're not around. What's the harm in that? Instead, it's a blessing. It encourages the person we're talking to. It encourages the person who later on hears that we've been in talking about them in such a positive way. Everyone benefits. And we contribute to unity instead of division. In fact, I mentioned jealousy a couple of times. I have found personally 
that one of the greatest antidotes to jealousy, when you feel jealous of someone, is to just say it either to their face or to someone else, sincerely compliment and encourage them. And if you do that, you'll find it's really hard to be jealous of somebody when you're seeing the good and praising the good in them. Now, it has to be sincere, nothing fake. But when you do that, jealousy goes away. We are all on the same team. We are all on the same team. When I criticize you, it doesn't help the team. What kind of teammate am I? Am I a critic or am I an encourager? Last question. Do I keep clicks or do I reach out? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Do I keep clicks or do I reach out? 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 says, 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul talks about divisions in verse 10. I don't believe he's talking about formal divisions. You know, where people are saying, I don't want to worship with you anymore. I want to go somewhere else. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. I believe what he is talking about is what we would call cliques, informal divisions. Little groups within the group. And so you've got the group that says, well, we're all Christians here. But I like Paul. We're all Christians here, but we really favor Peter. And we're Apollos people. And so there are divisions of an informal variety. And you can see how they would develop. You see, it would be very simple. We, we all understand that it's just a social dynamic. That it's natural for us to try to find people that, that think like us that are like us maybe in age or education or background, hobbies, whatever it is, we just sort of naturally gravitate to certain people and not to others. And that happens in all organizations. It happens in churches. So we understand that. You can see how that would happen. But you can also see how, how we would start to do that on the basis of ideas. We say, you know, I like the way you think. And we start being together more socially and we start really getting to like that person. But then we start to talk about the other people. You know who I don't like the way they think is old so-and-so. You know, I can't believe that they would say this about that. And so we begin to criticize one another. And so that just intensifies the group mentality. So my group, we know what we're talking about. But that group over there, uh, they're way off. Totally misguided, really mistaken. And you can see how that would intensify. We unite around what we don't like and what we don't agree with. And we begin to think that we know best. Turn the page to chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. These groups in Corinth, I believe, were behind all the major issues in the Corinthian church that 1 Corinthians describes. All of them are not helped by fragmentation into cliques. But you can see in 1 Corinthians 12 how they even begin to not see the value in other people at all. Look in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 12, 14. 
For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Did you catch it? Some parts are saying to other parts, I don't need you. What good are you? I don't like you. You're not contributing anything. You are worthless. This still happens. The contrast that Paul gives to this idea of keeping clicks, of having our own little group that we're comfortable with, is the idea of reaching out. Look in verse 22 now. 1 Corinthians 12, 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul's answer is very simple. He says that we should have the same care. In fact, he says that in verse 25, that there may be no division, no schism, your version might say, in the body, but that we would all have the same care. That no matter who it is, we all look at one another the same. We care the same. If you are hurting, I hurt with you. If you are honored, I rejoice with you, no matter who you are. I reach out across these little groups beyond what is natural for me and show you the same care I would show anyone else. So, what about me? This is a question each one of us needs to answer individually. This is not about how do we do this as a group. This is about how do I do this. Do I keep clicks or do I reach out? Am I willing to go outside my group to build relationships, especially outside my age bracket? I found assumptions are dangerous here. I found it's very easy to assume we know what other people think and believe, how they would respond, that we don't have anything in common with them or that we already know. We can't assume that other people are a certain way or that they're not interested in that or that they would say or do something that would put us off of this goal. So my encouragement to you is to reach out, to have conversations with people and build relationships with people that may not be as naturally easy for you. Find mentors who are older than you and can help you. Find younger people that you can influence and encourage. Talk Bible with people. If there is anybody in the world we can talk shop with about the Bible, isn't it the people in this room? Ask people about their conversions. I found that is a tremendous Christian-style icebreaker with people that you don't know very well. How did you become a Christian? What was that like? Ask about their family. 
Ask what they're struggling with and what you can pray for them about. Build relationships. But whatever you do, understand that when you only keep to those people that are easiest, you are contributing to division. Because you are saying, these are the people that I only want to care about and show honor to. Reach out. When difficulty strikes, our bonds are going to be tested. The question is, are we going to have any? Are we going to have any bonds that will stand through difficult times? I can contribute to that. I want you to take these questions home with you. I want you to think about them. And if there are things that need to change... I encourage you to see the priority Jesus has put on unity. Do I cause problems or solve them? Do I criticize or encourage? Do I keep clicks or do I reach out? It is time for us to take personal accountability about this. It's very easy to think that division happens over our head, but it's time for us to understand what we do on a weekly, daily basis contributes to unity and division. Would you pray with me about that? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time that you blessed us with to open your word. Father, we thank you so much that we can be a part of your people, that you have bought us out of our sins, that we can together join our voices and our lives, and we can live in community together. We ask your blessings on this community and this group as we try to live in unity. I pray that you'll help us to see the consequences of our actions and our attitudes toward one another. And help us to see, Father, that we can fulfill the hope and will of Jesus. We can encourage one another and we can strengthen this group so that we grow in spirit and in number. I pray your blessings on us, Father, as we pursue this goal. Help us especially to be honest and introspective. Help us to be willing to change as we see your word confronting us with the need to do better. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel. I want you to know the reason we've talked about what we talked about this morning, the reason we do what we do is not because we just enjoy religion. It's not just because we have a habit, but it's because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. It's because we are a part of his body, the church, and that we take that responsibility and that blessing very seriously. And we want more than anything else to honor him with our lives so that someday we can live with him forever. And if you're interested in that, if you want to become a disciple of Jesus, we would love nothing more than to help you to be right with God this morning by being baptized into Christ, having your sins washed away, knowing that the sacrifice of Jesus is what gives us hope for eternal life. If there is a need that you have to be baptized into Christ or anything that we can help you with, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.